When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here on the half of the podcast. Kyle, I'd normally say happy Sunday, but uh, for some of us in the room, I'd probably say it wasn't the happiest of days. Guys, just to let you know, Kev's kind of going through it right now. Uh, there was some big news that involved his favorite basketball team, the Dallas Mavericks, today. I think by now, I think everybody has heard the news in regards to the Mavericks uh, acquiring Kyrie Irving in a trade from the Brooklyn Nets. Obviously, that's something that we'll get to. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about Brooklyn, and then we got some NFL topics. But we got a pretty good agenda to go through, my guy. So, bro, you want to set the scene for the episode today? Yes, sir. So Kyle already alluded Dallas trades for Kyrie Irving. We'll get into the specifics of what happened in the trade. Uh, obviously, my thoughts on it. And then, of course, we'll kind of give our feedback on what we believe that means for Brooklyn moving forward. We'll kind of transition into the same kind of realm, specifically focalizing on the Nets big three that they had or the Nets experiment that they tried over the last couple of years when Kyrie and KD signed in Brooklyn in 2019. And then, of course, getting James Harden the next year or the year after that and how all of that kind of just blew up in their face. So we'll just talk about the epic fail that was the Brooklyn experiment and uh, kind of just give our thoughts on what happened there. Then we'll transition into the NFL. As you guys already know, from the day we're recording, which is Sunday, we are one week away from the big game, Super Bowl 57. We talked about Andy Reid in our last episode, so it's only fair we talk about the Philadelphia Eagles head coach, Nick Sirianni, and our thoughts as to where he stands right now in the coaching realm in terms of amongst his peers. But specifically focused within the younger generation because we all know that Nick Sirianni is not next to the Bill Belichicks, the Andy Reeds, the John Harbaugh's, and things like that. It, it takes a long resume as a head coach to kind of touch the, not the great ones, but to touch the more experience-leveled coaches. Let's just leave it at that. And then uh, we're going to continue the segments that we've been going through. Uh, Three improvements specific teams need to focus on for 2023. And this week, we are going to talk about the Baltimore Ravens and the Seattle Seahawks and what they need to do to improve for next season. So like Kyle said, definitely a packed agenda. Got a lot to talk about in, obviously, the NBA and the NFL. But obviously, man, we got to start with the NBA. So just, you know, just give it to me, man. Let me know. Are you sure? You're going to be all right? Guys, I, as I always do, I give a warning. It's going to be a rant, but it is also 1045 in the evening on Sunday. So you guys are very, very lucky that if I were to scream right now, I'd probably end up having an eviction notice on my door in the morning. So um, it's going to be a more docile explanation with my frustration. If you couldn't already tell, if you're not seeing my face and hear my tone of voice, I'm not happy with the trade. So Kyle, let's let's just dive right into it. I, I'm just saying it might 
be worth the noise complaint just so you get literally all of this hate that's seething through your veins right now in regards to this trade because is Isabel got a good portion of it on the phone for about 35 minutes on the ride home from the gym you were mentioning before we started recording have we done this at like i don't know like 5 30 6 o'clock in the afternoon bro a noise complaint would have been easy money imminent 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 at that point it's like the nba or the nfl you know the fines coming have the money put aside all right let's let's just dive into it so uh Kev can just move past this segment because honestly he'll feel a lot better once this segment's over and done with. But no, obviously the big news, uh, this is the first big trade that we've seen before the trade deadline, which will take place later this week. So that trade deadline is on the ninth, but we had some movement and the Brooklyn Nets agree to trade Kyrie Irving to the Dallas Mavericks. So obviously Dallas gets Kyrie Irving in exchange for Spencer Dinwiddie, Dorian Finney-Smith, and first-round picks, and multiple... Actually, I think it's a first-round pick. One, one first-round mul- pick. And multiple second-round picks, uh, just so I get the uh, so I get the amount right. But, yeah, this is a big trade. Uh, this is definitely something that's going to shake up not only the Eastern Conference in Brooklyn, but it is going to also shake up uh, the Western Conference, simply just because, you know, you do add somebody like Kyrie's skill to a team like Dallas, uh, it's going to have a significant impact. Um, we'll see whether or not that it's going to be a positive one or a negative one, time will tell. But with around 30 games left for Dallas, honestly, time will tell when it comes to this experiment uh, that Dallas is running with Kyrie in the fold alongside Luka. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, give me your thoughts about Kyrie Irving being traded from the Brooklyn Nets to the Dallas Mavericks. I have to start this with... I have no issue with Kyrie Irving's skill. We know that he is probably one of the most gifted athletes we've ever seen with a basketball in terms of having that ball on a string. He is widely renowned for having arguably the best handles we've ever seen, even surpassing AI. And we're talking about the answer, the truth, like the guy that was known for revolutionizing how handle was viewed in the NBA in Allen Iverson. And... I mean, Kyrie's been regarded to have the best handle in the league since he's entered in 2011, 2012, whenever his rookie year was. And again, I'm not saying that he's a bad player on the court. What he can do for you on the court, we know, 25 to 30 points a game. For my team, for my Mavericks, this is the stupidest decision we could have made. If this doesn't show anything, it shows desperation from the front office. It shows lack of preparation. It shows inexperience in the leadership and management role. We are going to trade away our best on-ball defender in Dorian Finney-Smith, our best player off the bench in Spencer Dinwiddie. In some instances, Spencer started, depending on you know the availability of some of our starters. Then you go and you trade our future first-round pick for 2027, a second-round pick for 2027 and 2029, and the first-round pick is unprotected. You know how many games the Dallas Mavericks have for the remainder of the season? 28. Do you know that that is literally in, in, in the equivalent of a, of a calendar month outside of February? That is less than a month's worth of basketball left to stretch all the way through April until the playoffs begin. So we have to assume that a guy that hasn't necessarily been available for his previous teams, whether that be for injury, political stances, or just quite frankly, he didn't feel like playing. So let me go down those numbers, right? So Kyrie Irving has been a member of the Brooklyn Nets since 2019. In the year he started, 
In the year he got to, to, to Brooklyn, he played 20 games. In 2020, 54 games. Obviously, that included COVID. He did not go to the bubble. So again, a lot of people didn't play in that instance. But again, neither here nor there. It's still not a full season. The following year, 29 games. Didn't want to take the vaccine. Had his own beliefs, own stances, whatever. This year, he's played 40. So if anything, you're getting a player that's never available. You're getting a player that has ruined a multitude of locker rooms. You're getting a player that didn't want to play under LeBron James. You're getting a player that was intimidated with the rising of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. You're getting somebody that was agitated with Brooklyn not giving him everything that he had wanted, even though they were willing to offer him a Supermax extension, I believe, after the 2020 season or 2021 season, but he declined because he felt that he wanted more money. KD gets a Supermax extension for $198 million, almost $200 million. Kyrie is in and out of the lineup again for various reasons, and he wants upwards of $200 million again. So you, you, you got a guy that throws temper tantrums, doesn't show up for work, cancer to the locker room, and is just an overall bad teammate for 28 games at $34, $35 million for the, for the remainder of the year, whatever it is we have to dish out and pay. Talking about a guy that doesn't necessarily play defense. He isn't known for defense. You're talking about a guy that needs the ball in his hand. You're talking about a guy that plays the point guard position, which is what Luka plays. You're talking about a player in Luka Doncic that cannot play off the ball, that is also not a good defender. You're talking about a guy that couldn't handle playing with Dennis Smith Jr. the year after his rookie season and ended up getting Dennis traded. Now you bring in a guy that didn't want to play under arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, two young 20-year-olds that were taking away shots, opportunities, points, whatever you have you in Boston with Jason and Jalen. You go and you sign with Brooklyn. You don't like the way the head coaching situation is, is handled. You have no regard for James Harden. You don't respect him. You don't want him. You get him shipped off. You request a trade in the offseason. KD requests a trade. You decide to opt in. You make hell for the team. You say the anti-Semitic comments. Your owner makes life a living hell for you, making you donate over $500,000 in charities and fines, whatever the hell the situation was. You're scoring over 30 points a game over your last eight. Brooklyn is starting to get it back together before KD returns from his MCL sprain. And then you request a trade. Tell me in that list of shit that you think the Dallas Mavericks need to deal with. Tell me in that list of nonsense that Dallas needs to have that on their plate when they're already struggling to find their rhythm. You have two ball-dominant players that don't play defense. Luke has never had to succumb to anybody when, when it comes to having the ball in his hands. Kyrie's already had to do that on a multitude of occasions in his career with LeBron in Cleveland. In some instances, Jason and Jalen. And then, of course, in some instances in Brooklyn, you had to give it up to KD. You think he's going to listen to a 23-year-old that has no championships? No league MVPs? Cool, he's got some all-star game appearances that he started in. Cool, he's got some all-pros. Yeah, Kyrie's got hardware. Kyrie has played on a multitude of deep-running playoff teams in terms of Cleveland. Boston made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, albeit without him because he was injured that year. He has been a part of teams that have made it far. He has played with high all-star, all-pro, Hall of Fame caliber players. Luka Doncic is 23 years old who got to his first Western Conference Finals last year. Kyrie Irving's going to look at him and say, give me the ball. I know what I'm doing. And the peace day resistance about the whole thing, a report came out about an hour ago from Mark Stein. 
Dallas is going to focus on an extension at the end of the year. So 28 games, trade away a, trade, trade away two players, future, and we're spending more money on Kyrie than we were on the other two players for him to leave in the summer. So people on Twitter are saying, oh, this is it's all in championship. So you think Kyrie Irving is going to win us a championship when the Mavericks haven't had a big since Tyson Chandler? When the Mavericks have not had a top 10 defense at a consistent level outside of last season in 15 years. The Dallas Mavericks have not had a deep bench in years. But getting rid of two assets, getting rid of two valuable players is going to make up for Kyrie Irving coming to Dallas. Mavs Twitter's blind. They're all focused on the name that is Kyrie Irving. But forget that Kyrie Irving has not been available over the course of the last four to five years. This isn't Kyrie Irving from the NBA Finals in 2016 where he dropped 40 with LeBron James. This isn't the Kyrie Irving that hit clutch shot after clutch shot after clutch shot throughout that entire postseason. This is Kyrie Irving six years later, multiple injuries later, multiple headaches later, distractions in the media, and all of those things. But because he's playing with Luka Doncic, people believe that that is enough for us to go to the Finals. Last I checked, there are still a multitude of teams in the Western Conference that are better than the Mavericks on paper, even with Kyrie on the team. So before we go and we crown Dallas the 2023 NBA champions or say that we're a shoo-in for the NBA Finals or the Western Conference Finals again, how about we see how he plays with Luka Doncic? Because I expect this to be an utter failure for more than one reason. Again, we're already not a good defensive team. Now you two are going to fight for who takes the last shot. If one's on a hot night and the other's on a cold night, the other one's going to want the ball back because he's, he wants to continue the hot streak, while the other player that's struggling is going to want to shoot out of a slump because we've seen Luka and Kyrie do it in the postseason, in the regular season. Shoot or shoot, right? I don't see how this works. I don't see how this fits. ESPN, I believe, graded this a D in terms of for Dallas and a B-plus in terms of for Brooklyn in terms of overall grade for the trade. I don't think that that could have been more accurate. Brooklyn gets some depth, they get a guard, they get a, a strong forward, and they get some draft capital, and they get Kyrie the hell out of their locker room. Rather than losing him in free agency to, for nothing, they acquired what I would look at, a soccer team that was desperate for another star player in the Dallas Mavericks. This is going to end up being a disaster. Kyrie's going to walk at the end of the year, and we're probably going to be a second-round exit at the most. This is horrible. I knew you had a lot in the chamber for that one. Trust me. I was fully aware it was probably going to take some time to, to get all that info out. But, um, Kev, obviously, this is your team. And I don't really know anybody that knows this team better than you do. I'm just going to ask you this. Like, are there any, and I mean any positives, that you can take from this trade? Just something of even a smidge of, positive value from this you have to go off of one sole thing which is going to be if Kyrie Irving because we're playing the hypothetical game because we don't know what the hell's going to happen if Kyrie's available for all 28 you can't double Luka anymore if you double Luka you leave someone on an island to guard Kyrie Irving he is going to cook the majority of matchups that present him themselves in front of him we know that he is one of the best isolation players in the game we know that he is the best best fourth quarter score in the league this year. So in terms of closing games out, I would not want to have another player. But if Luka's having one of those hot games where he's got 35 plus and he's going for 50, 
this is what I'm talking about in terms of who's going to get it, who's going to want it more. I would say that, again, yes, he gives an option for a shot creator. He gives an option as a, as a for sure second, if not first option. It, again, depends on how they mesh. And he alleviates the pressure of Luka getting doubled and triple team when driving into the paint because you're going to double Luka and Kyrie and leave two people open? Like, I don't think that that works. Again, it really just depends how it's worked out in terms of how Jason Kidd's going to manage it. But we already know Jason Kidd based on his substitutions and the roster assimilation that they've had over the last two years, that he isn't really the, the, the coach that you would want leading a personality like Luka and Kyrie. So again, the positive is take eyes off of Luka, spread the floor. Maybe something can happen. If Luka's already given me 33, 34, if Kyrie can give me 22 to 26 points a game consistently. Also, I will say Kyrie's like a career 90% free throw shooter. We're not a great free throw shooting team. So at least we have some consistency at the line to close out games once again. Those are two things I'm looking for. But again, that's just on the offensive side of the ball because Kyrie Irving is not known for being a, the best perimeter defender. Well, you know, when, when I look at this situation, and I'm going to look at it from two perspectives. One would just be a casual NBA fan that's kind of like loosely paying attention to this trade. They would probably think, damn, you know, Dallas just made a huge move to acquire Kyrie Irving. And obviously, you know, Kyrie is bringing some baggage along with him from Brooklyn. But the fact that you have Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving, some of the most dynamic players in the NBA, you know, if you're looking at it from a casual perspective, I think that there would be some general excitement about that, knowing what both of those guys can be capable of on a night in, night out basis. Now, I'm going to kind of look at it from a practical sense. Kev, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this one. I think long-term, I don't think this is going to work out. And typically, when we look at trades of this magnitude that involve a superstar or multiple superstars, and there's like this collection of what you would consider like a super team, it typically doesn't work out well. I mean, we have recent experience with Brooklyn. Brooklyn brought in Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. And they have no NBA Finals championships to show for it. That's something we'll get into a little bit later. But, you know, you really have a dynamic duo of Kyrie and, and Luka. And, you know, the only one duo that has really been successful of late, you could look at, okay, the Lakers. The Lakers won that in the bubble with LeBron and AD. But you look to last year, you look at what the Warriors did. They still had Steph, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, but they have some young studs in Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins. When I look at Dallas, I mean, outside of Luka and Kyrie, you have Christian Wood, you have Reggie Bullock, and Dwight Powell. M. Hardaway Jr. on a week that he's shooting okay. The, the issue for me, Kev, is depth. They don't have enough to be able to make those long playoff runs to where we can consider them being not only like a Western Conference Finals contender, but a NBA Finals contender. So as far as I see it, I, I think this is actually a loss for Dallas in the long term. So for me, you know, I think the way that Kev kind of laid it out is is that there's a potential that Kyrie could really just be looked at as a rental for Dallas for the rest of the year because we don't know what his intentions are going to be going into this offseason. And 
even if things were to work out hypothetically well for Dallas with Kyrie in the fold, and let's say they do make a Western Conference Finals, would that be enough to entice him to keep him there long-term and to sign you know, a four- or five-year extension? I'm not so sold on that. You know, and I think that Kyrie probably has some different ideas of how he wants to see his NBA career going after the season. I think that more than likely he's probably excited about the idea of playing with Luka and seeing the opportunity that they can build together. But I think the issue that Dallas is going to run into is that they're just not going to have really the defensive capability to be able to slow down teams on a night-in, night-out basis. I mean, like you said, Kev, when you lose somebody like Dorian Finney-Smith, that's a pretty significant defensive presence that you're going to lack moving forward. And, you know, unless Luka and Kyrie are combining to score at least 60 to 70 points a night, which, you know, to to be able to score 70 points consistently between that duo, that's going to be a tall task. You know, most of the time you might get around like 50-55, but... It seems to me Dallas is going to be in a, in a position where they're going to have to score at least 110, 120, 125 points a night to be able to cover their lack of defensive intensity that they're going to bring now that they don't have Dorian Finney-Smith in the fold and even Spencer Dinwiddie to a certain extent. It's just, obviously, I think a lot of people from a casual perspective think that this is going to be somewhat of a decent move for Dallas simply just because it is Kyrie Irving. But I think the way that this is set up as the dynamic duo that we're going to have with Luka and Kyrie, I don't think that those two are going to be able to overcome the defensive, the lack of defensive presence that they're going to have as a roster. And especially once you get farther past just the starters and you look at the depth of the team, I don't think this is going to be enough. So more than likely, um, I hate being the pessimist here, But more than likely, this is not going to work out well for Dallas in the long term. Hopefully it does for their sake because, you know, from a front office perspective, this is definitely a risk. You're taking somebody like Kyrie Irving, who for over the last couple of years has been a head case. There has been a lot of drama surrounding Kyrie Irving. The lack of availability is an issue. Um, Injuries kind of come and go with Kyrie. So those are two factors that you kind of have to consider moving forward with him. And honestly... You know, this year he has been more consistent, but it's like you can't rule out the possibility of some sort of drama ensuing around Kyrie Irving. And I Dallas shouldn't put up with it if that becomes a lingering issue, if it even starts with him. So, yeah, I, I understand why, why Kev is frustrated with this trade. And, um, you know, I guess if I just had to say just to be a little bit positive here, hopefully it works out against what Kev just laid out and even what I've laid out. But I think it's more likely than not that things are not going to go well long-term for the Mavericks here. And there's a very good chance that this could literally just be a rental for a couple months and that he could look for a different destination come this offseason. So as far as I see it, unless Dallas goes all the way to the NBA Finals and they win, I don't see him coming back. And granted, the trade just happened this past weekend, but my projection on this is not favorable for Dallas. And honestly, I'll just leave it at that. There's not much else you can say. Um, I read 
a couple different tweets, uh, people, the rare population that actually shares my opinion that this is a bad trade for Dallas. Do you remember in the playoffs when, when teams targeted Luka on the defensive side? Like they would have Luka switch on and they would take advantage. Mm-hmm. Now you have two of them. Mm-hmm. And if Tim Hardaway's having an off night, you're not going to worry about him in the corner. If Reggie Bullock's having an off night, you're not going to worry about him on the perimeter. If you have Dwight Powell on the floor, what? He's good for an alley-oop? I'm just, I'm just saying, like, if Christian Wood is not there to even out the offense as a big, and I use the word big loosely, um, I don't necessarily know how this is going to pan out. I really don't. And since Kyrie Irving is not playing uh, Monday, which is when we play Utah, and his first game will be Wednesday against the Clippers, he will technically only have played, if he plays against the Clippers, it's rumored, 27 games. I know. I'm I'm just saying, you know, like you cannot make this up. To go all in for someone like Kyrie Irving, to me, it makes no sense. If you go all in for Kevin Durant, if you go all in for, again, hypothetically, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, that's different. You go all in for players like that. Now, I know I gave a bad example with Kevin Durant because he's had an injured, che- he's had a checkered injury history the last couple of seasons as well, but it's still Kevin fucking Durant. It's a whole different, yeah. Mac, there's levels to this shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. now I'm starting to get, now I feel it's starting to get bubbled up again. I got to like, bring it back down. Bro, this man on a whim, like he did in Brooklyn, can just literally say, I don't feel like playing today. I know. And what are you, you're going gonna to find him? He's a grown man. You're not going to forcibly drag him into an arena. We saw this happen with a personality, not similar, but in the ballpark of just being a head case in Rajon Rondo. Him and Rick Carlisle didn't get along, and Rondo quit on the team. He just did, he quit on us mid-playoff series against the Rockets a couple years back, or 10 years ago, whenever the hell that was. This is another situation of making another bad mistake for a rental year. And there's no guarantee we even fucking make the finals. Like, if you go and get a player, like I said, it has to be somebody of super mag... For me, bro, for me, not the potential of what Kyrie could be. Like, it's like that, that, that meme of, like, Wolverine laying in bed of, like, I miss you, like, it's a different athlete every time. Like, in my mind, Mavs fans are looking at the picture of Kyrie Irving hitting the game-winning shot over Steph Curry in the finals. I think this is the Kyrie Irving that they're envisioning we're going to get. I, and it's not. It's not. And somebody tried to... T- it was Tyree. Shout out to Tyree. I forgot. Tyree texted me because that's his boy. You know, it's his favorite player. Kyrie, t- Ty- Tyree texted me saying that he's used to this. There's a blueprint. He did this with Braun. Do you understand that LeBron James is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time and Luka Doncic is 23? <laughs> <laughs> that was Kyrie funny. Irving, that was Kyrie funny. Irving is not going to pass the ball to a child. He didn't have a choice in Cleveland. LeBron had just come off two championships in Miami, two out of four years, three league MVPs. He's the king of Cleveland. You can't say no to him. Like, you literally, like, if Bronson said, give me the ball, you have to give him the ball. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. it's, it's, if Luca's literally, I'm open. Like, Kyrie's gonna look, uh huh. I've been here. I can do this. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, the people don't understand. There's, there's levels to this. It's a different kind of respect. Yes, LeBron James and Luca have similarities in their game. I have to sound the word out because some people like to say that Luca's the next coming of LeBron James without athleticism. That's just not an accurate representation 
whatsoever. Or maybe he can Larry rebound, Bird. he can maybe pass. Larry Bird or something. Even at that, I wouldn't give him that category. Again, until you give me something to go off of, some kind of hardware, not an all-pro, not an all-star oh, game. I, I mean, like, get the an look, MVP, the style. Still. Kyrie Irving didn't have an, uh, an opportunity to say no. He plays with Kevin Durant now, or played with... Kevin Durant's going to go down as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Another pillar in the NBA in terms of modern basketball and all of the NBA, quite frankly, because he's the first or second of his size. I would say Dirk is the first of his size to be able to do what he did, but Kevin Durant's just more athletic with the handle, so technically maybe the first. You have to defer to players like the two outliers in this example. Luka Doncic is not Kevin Durant and LeBron James. He's not going to defer to those players. You good? I feel better. I know. I know that was uh, that was quite lengthy, but no, like for me, Kev, it, it's understandable. It's just I I look at it like this, and we even talked about this when I was coming home from work. Um, had Dallas been able to trade Tim Hardaway Jr. instead of Spencer Dinwiddie, would you have been as mad? Probably not because we'll have another offensive option on the bench. And, you know, that even comes with the, the idea of still losing Dorian Finney-Smith. You do lose that defensive presence. I, I would get, but again, the, the what I'd lose on my perimeter, I'd gain off the bench on the defensive side. So if Kyrie's having an off night, you insert Spencer, that's a third option. That was what we had last year where we had Spencer, Jalen, and Luca. Now, granted, Kyrie is an upgrade from Spencer and Jalen, but now we don't have that third option. So now Did, the entire offense relies upon the two. Because I think Christian Woods is going to take a hit from this. He's a pick and roll player. Luka Doncic wants to pick and roll. Kyrie is an isolation player as well. He's not going to sit there and just dish out to the big man. So who's going to suffer from this? The big guy down low as well. I don't think wh- this is going to work, bro. Wh- one of the things I was thinking about was. I think if they've been able to retain Spencer, I think there would be more legitimate excitement from you about this. 100%. And and then maybe the idea of, well, maybe we could see if this could work. Maybe we could see if, you know, a Western Conference Finals appearance is possible. Because I'm just saying hypothetically here. Obviously, it didn't happen. If you have a roster that contains Kyrie Irving, Luka Doncic, Spencer Dinwiddie, Christian Wood, obviously you lose Dorian. You would lose Tim Hardaway in that case. You would have Dwight Powell, and you have your bench. That, to me, would actually seem like a relatively decent roster to work with. I agree. It's just, to me, when I look at it, the Spencer part hurt. You could say the Dorian part because of the defense. That I understand. And I also love Dorian because he's a man of his whole career. So, I mean, he came from nothing. It's just... I think they, I think they reached here, bro. I think they reached out here too far, and I think they overextended. Oh, your desperation. Hand. Yeah, th- to me, granted, you know, when you're making trades, there's always going to be risk associated because you just never know how it's going to work out. Yeah, this seems like far too much risk for not the reward that could come with it. You know, obviously, if the reward is they win an NBA Finals because of this, a maybe. Dallas, the Dallas front office saw something that we didn't. But, you know, typically when you get these dynamic duos that come together, typically it doesn't work out. 
I mean, outside of maybe a couple, you know, rare examples here and there, you know, you look at, I mean, look at the Clippers, look at Kawhi and Paul George. Have they even made it to an NBA finals with that dynamic duo? You've got Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry. Granted, Jimmy made it by himself. Jimmy, Jimmy got there. Well, I wouldn't say by himself. He had Bam and, and stuff like that, but yeah. But, you know, they're not really high in stature. We'll see what happens with, um, you know, the Celtics moving with Jalen and Jason. I mean, granted, they did make an NBA Finals last year. It seems like they're, they're kind of on an upward trajectory. But, you know, more times than not, you know, when you combine, like, these really, like, superstar caliber players together, it may work out in one instance, but the other instances, it's not going to work out in the long term. So, and we don't even know what's going to happen with Kyrie after this off after the season. So that just complicates things even further. The fact that it doesn't seem like they're going to reach any sort of contract negotiation this season. It's going to be after. So I don't know, Kev. I don't know. It, it, it is. It is what it is. But speaking of a long-term failure, got to talk about Brooklyn a little bit. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Dude, Brooklyn tried to assimilate what would be the deadliest offensive trio in NBA history in terms of these players at their peak health could have destroyed opposing defenses, and it fell apart. And it all started in 2019, like we talked about just a few minutes ago, with Kyrie and KD deciding to go to Brooklyn. Then they go and acquire James Harden in a trade a few years later. James then leaves to go to Philadelphia. They acquire Ben Simmons. Both respective players have been injured in and out of the lineup in KD. And obviously Kyrie, you throw Ben Simmons in there, but he's a scrub. And then both players respectively request trades. So it it just, I mean, from the beginning, from the jump, with KD, of course, missing that first year with the recovery from his Achilles, Kyrie getting hurt in that same season, Brooklyn basically had Kyrie and KD for 74 games in a a three-and-a-half-year span. That's not even a full season together on the court. So, Kyle, I got to ask you, with Brooklyn's experiment being an utter failure, what are your thoughts on teams trying to do something like this? And Brooklyn's done it twice with Paul Pierce and KG over 10 years ago. So what are your thoughts on this Brooklyn experiment going haywire? This kind of comes with the bad side of business. Look, when it comes to assembling super teams obviously everybody jumps to the hypothetical of oh well they're gonna win a championship and maybe not just one but multiple championships and when the nets combined kevin durant kyrie irving and james harden everybody was using the using the measuring stick of this team is an nba finals contender this could be a potential nba champion team that we're talking about here and, you know, now we're in 2023. Kevin Durant's the only one left, and they have zero NBA Finals to show for it. They never even made one 
as a trio. And to me, this is the story that is kind of getting lost in translation now that Kyrie Irving has been traded to Dallas. Everybody's focused about, you know, how is this going to impact Dallas with Kyrie joining forces with Luka Doncic? And I do think that that's a relevant story to go over. But at the same time, this trio that Brooklyn formed has basically been downgraded to one person in Kevin Durant. And now you have some other players like Ben Simmons. You have Spencer Dinwiddie, who's getting a homecoming. Now you insert Dorian Finney-Smith. Just from a pure superstar perspective, this team just doesn't have the stars that it used to. And we're not 100% sure if this is going to translate into more success to even get to a finals. I'm not even talking about the Brooklyn Nets are like on their way to winning the finals this year. Can they even make one? And look, when it comes to Kevin Durant, when he's led a team and not specifically when he joined forces with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green, he hasn't been able to lead his own team that he's really been the captain of to an NBA championship. He led the Thunder alongside Russell Westbrook to the finals back in 2012, but they were going up against a prime LeBron James and just a stacked Heat team. Outside of that, Katie doesn't have much to show for as far as him being that primary force to get his team into a position to compete for an NBA Finals championship. And honestly, we'll see what happens with Brooklyn moving forward now that they have you can maybe make an argument they have a little bit more depth now from this Dallas Mavericks trade that they just finalized this past weekend. But yeah, the initial formation of this trio that they had was an utter failure. James Harden had baggage that he brought from Houston. It always seemed like ego was something of an issue. It just, he didn't really mesh well with both KD and Kyrie. Kyrie's, availability was always questioned because there was always some sense of drama surrounding him, whether he was focused on politics, whether he was focused on trying to make some sort of social statement, or, you know, you look even back to this season, just earlier in the year with the supposed anti-Semitic remarks that he made, which wasn't really anti-Semitic. All he did was just post a thing on Twitter about some black Israelite movie. But, it just always seemed like Kyrie was involved in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. And it just leaves Kevin Durant left. And we'll kind of see what happens with Brooklyn moving forward. But Kevin, just to kind of round this out, to me, you know, obviously the Kyrie story of him going to Dallas deserves a lot of attention. But people are losing complete sight of what Brooklyn failed with this trio. And to me, Unless KD gets traded or he goes to somewhere else, maybe then people will finally catch up to the idea of that experiment finally failing. But I mean, to me, like, you know, this experiment was already failing when James Harden left, and this just pushed it to a whole new level. And I think, by and large, I think people are missing the mark on that. I think this is a story that is largely being unnoticed as far as I see it. They, they, truthfully, there's not really much I have to kind of like add on top of that because we talked about this. Ironically, Kyle and I were just looking at some numbers. Coincidentally, we posted a video about the Brooklyn Nets failure this time last year on the 4th of 2022. Dude, it, it's like 
history just continues to repeat itself. It's almost like Brooklyn is destined for failure because they continue to make trades like this. They continue to make decisions with the front office. I mean, they've changed leadership a few times in terms of ownership, and they've changed coaching a few times as well. But, I mean, when you go and you sign players that have checkered history with off-the-court problems, head, uh, head issues in terms of, like, just not being focused and not putting the team first, this is what you get. There's not much you can really do to definitively counter that point. Kyrie Irving has always had an agenda. Obviously, Kevin Durant wanted to do his own thing after leaving Golden State. James Harden has always wanted to prove to the league, in my opinion, that he's wanted to do something on his own when he decided to... Um, no, he actually didn't decide. He, he got traded from OKC. But, I mean, ever since that trade, uh, James Harden was always out there to say, you know, I'm going to do it by myself, whether that's with 7 to 12 dribbles or with 50-point games. I really, don't really, I, I really don't know what else to say. But Brooklyn is no stranger to specifically going out here and, and making risky moves like this. I think this is going to be the final straw. If KD is not moved, once his contract expires, Brooklyn has got to either figure out how to make things homegrown, like with players like Cam Thomas, or they just go out there and they acquire people on shorter-term deals. Because giving super megastars like this, deals like that, just it ends up becoming, Kevin, what do you want? Kyrie, what do you want? What can we do for you? I believe that the, off, the front office was very, very, very... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? When they're... Um, willing to do whatever you want. They were, they were very accommodating. That's the word I'm looking for. And KD and Kyrie completely took advantage of their kindness. And, 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 and unfortunately, Brooklyn is not reaping any benefits from this, and they're suffering. Kev, I, you know, that kind of just comes with the business. I mean, when it comes with you know, acquiring big-name players, obviously that generates a lot of excitement for just that local team. But it doesn't necessarily translate to success you know there are there have been times where it has worked out you know obviously the biggest one recently was when kevin durant joined forces with golden state and you know essentially they were like a shoe-in to make the nba finals every single year even though there, there were some years where they were teetering on missing the finals i think it was the was it 2017 20 uh, 2018 when they played houston in a seven game series the the series yeah, no, where that came down to yeah Houston missed like the first like 33 point attempts that they took in game seven. That was a game more than likely they could have won had they not had that historically bad shooting performance. Yeah. You know, obviously you could look towards Miami forming their big three uh, at the beginning of the 2010s. You know, that worked out Boston with their big three. They won a championship together, but you know, people were instantly thinking that that team that broken form just a couple years ago, it, it seems like an eternity now, especially post COVID. Because I swear to God, like that two year gap of like 2020 to 2022 went like it's like a black hole as far as I remember it. It and now we're in 2023, and it's like that trio of who we just described with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. I mean, to shelve itself now, you only have one player in, in KD, and we don't know what his status is going to be moving on forward. Because there have been rumors circulating about him potentially getting moved. I mean, Phoenix is is willing to pay up a, a pretty hefty price to try to bring KD into the fold. And we don't know if it's going to happen. But it seems to me that unless Brooklyn goes out and wins a championship this year, people should be looking at this far more uh, critically 
when it comes to Brooklyn's management of how this situation unfolded. And I think largely it's being ignored. You know, obviously people are talking about the Kyrie thing and that's a big deal with the trade, but I wonder if that's going to be a storyline that's going to kind of show itself as time goes on. Because I honestly, I, I don't really see a lot of people talking about that right now. Of course not. Why would they? KD's still there. There's still an opportunity. There's still a chance. One of the best players in the league can still at least get you into the first round, maybe fight to push you depending on who they face to get you to the second round if healthy. But, I mean, look what happened last year. KD was putting up, what, 35 shots to get 32 points against the Celtics? It just a one-man show didn't work. Granted, Kyrie did play, but he was inefficient as well. And, you know, I don't want to get lost in translation. You know, Brooklyn is having a relatively good year this year. They are competitive in the Eastern Conference this year. But I don't think anybody's penning in Brooklyn to go straight to the NBA Finals this year and they're an automatic shoe-in. You know, you have other teams to contend with in the Eastern Conference like the 76ers, the Celtics, the Bucks. I mean, to me, those teams present more of a challenge to Brooklyn. And it, I would just be more inclined to say that one of those teams is more than likely set up for a Finals run this year over Brooklyn. Brooklyn's probably in that formula, but I think there's probably three or four teams ahead of them right now. So even though that they increase their depth, I just don't think it's enough. You know, and, and history would point towards the idea of I don't think Kevin Durant can lead a team into an NBA Finals and win when it's just him. He hasn't been able to yet. You know, the Golden State years, you know, he had a lot of help. But with him being that lone superstar, it hasn't worked out. Now, granted, he had Russell to work with back in OKC, and they had some decent shots. They had some decent opportunities. They just couldn't cash in on it. And your best option outside of KD is Ben Simmons? Spencer, now. I don't think it's going to work. Yeah, well, yeah it's, I don't it's, think it's going to work. Not. But, but before we continue to harp down this avenue, because truthfully, honestly, Kyle and I can just break down what Brooklyn's done over the last five years and just poke a hole in pretty much every thought bubble they've possibly had. We do have to talk about some NFL content. Like I said at the beginning, Super Bowl is a week away from today, and we have two head coaches that are in two different positions of their careers. We talked about Angie Reid arguably being one of the best coaches in the NFL. But now we have to talk about the other coach, and that's the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. So, Kyle, what do you got for me? Yeah, so... Uh, like Kev just outlined, uh, we're going to go over Nick Sirianni. And granted, you know, Nick has been the head coach for the Eagles for a relatively short period of time. And yet, despite that, we have seen, I would say, a significant bump in just overall success from the Eagles as a whole in his short tenure as the Eagles head coach. I mean, this year they finished as the number one seed. In the NFC, they finished with a 14-3 and record. And Kev, to be honest with you, their playoff path this year has been relatively smooth. They have pretty much waxed the competition that they've gone up against. Obviously, the 49ers one was a little bit different with Brock Purdy uh, hurting his elbow in that game. And, you know, Josh Johnson basically being a guy that's basically hit every NFL roster. You know, I wouldn't say that the Eagles were going up against top flight competition in that game. And they dispatched the Giants pretty easily. You know, and all of this is led by their head coach in Nick Sirianni. And obviously his 
I think the impact that he's brought to the team has improved not only the offense, but I think it's just improved the confidence as the team has just continued to win games pretty much week by week. They have been a very good team this year, and they have a very good chance uh, to defeat the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 57 when that game takes place on Sunday. So, Kev, I'll lay this question out to you like this. Do you think that Nick Sirianni's success with the Eagles is a one-hit hunt is a one-hit wonder, or do you think that this is something that the Eagles will build on for the long-term future? To be honest, I think that answer solely depends upon the result of the Super Bowl next week. I mean, if you go out there and say a one-hit wonder led you to a Super Bowl, I think that one-hit wonder was a success. I think everybody is well aware in sports how hard it is to obtain a championship, let alone in the NFL with the season being so short. These seasons come at you quickly. These 16, 17, 18 weeks, whatever it is, they fly. I mean, Kyle and I blink, and the season's already over. Imagine these players that are going out there and putting their lives on the line, how they feel. So, I mean, if you consider going into a season with a star-studded roster, a bunch of different personalities, a bunch of different egos, um, a quarterback that has given you kind of like an up-and-down performance as his career started with Jalen Hurts, and you would have told me they're going to go 14 and 3 and they're going to have an easy path to the Super Bowl. I would have laughed in your face. I predicted the Eagles to make the playoffs. I predicted them to win the NFC East. But uh, the road that they would have had to have to go to the Super Bowl the way that they did, I, don't, I, I wouldn't have assumed that that would have been a possibility. But again, that has to start with coaching. Yes, Howie Roseman was able to go out there and acquire big pieces and not only the free agent market, but on the trade market as well. Yes, he was able to extend specific players and retain everybody. But. It takes a special person to hone in those men and keep those egos in check, to keep those veterans with that, that mindset of we're here to win, to keep those young guys motivated to continue to play and grow and get better. Hassan Reddick, free agent acquisition. James Bradbury, that was a free agent acquisition. Darius Slay was a trade a few years ago. Obviously, you trade for A.J. Brown this year. You draft Jalen Hurts in the second or third round. You trade Carson Wentz for some capital for the Col- from the Colts. You know what I'm saying? Like They made moves to get better, and this is the perfect example of how teams do that, and that starts with the head coach. Last year, they were eight and, uh, nine and eight. They had a super slow start to the year. They end up bouncing back and getting a first-round exit, unfortunately, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but they showed promise, and they showed that they can do it with a young team. Then you go into this year, you start off... I don't remember, what was it, 11-0, and 12-0, some shit like that? And then they go and they struggle. They have a little bit of an issue with the injuries to Jalen. The defense starts to struggle a little bit. The offensive line starts to struggle a little bit. They bounce back. They clinch the division. And then they, 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 they win the games that they need to win. Sirianni's record right now in the regular season is 23-11. and 11. That's over a 600% winning percentage. I know that's not a big sample size, but again, when you're talking about the NFL only being 17, 18 games a year, that's pretty solid for a second-year head coach with a Super Bowl appearance, might I add. So to go from a wild-card team to a Super Bowl team, potentially, depending on who you ask, a Super Bowl-favored team with one of the better defenses in the league, one of the better offenses in the league, yes, personnel matters, but execution is what's key. Philadelphia had a super team not too long ago, and they flopped. They were awful. Remember that, Kyle, in the offseason? They went out and they had Michael Vick, Vince Young, all these star-studded players with Chip Kelly's elusious offense. Namdi Osmoa, remember him? It, it, you, see what I'm, you see where I'm getting at? They, they had their super team. 
and it, and it fell apart. Nick Sirianni found a way to get these personalities together in a room, in the offseason, in camp, and said, this is our goal. This is what we're going to do. And to those of you that say that's every coach's job, the point is, are they successful? Success is determined by winning. And if you win a Super Bowl, that is success. Again, personnel makes a difference. Schedule matters. But executing on game day throughout the season, week in and week out, is what matters the most. They're going up against their toughest opponent yet in Patrick Mahomes. So this will be another test for the team. But from a coaching perspective, where Nick Sirianni came from in terms of his coaching world, this being his first head coaching opportunity to go from a wildcard team to a Super Bowl team, I would say it's pretty impressive. And I would say if they win the Super Bowl this year, whether or not it's a one-hit wonder or not in terms of if people end up leaving in free agency, they have to figure out cap situations, I would say that that one-hit wonder, it worked out pretty well for them. Have we sort of highlighted this last year? Because, you know, granted, they got defeated by the Bucks pretty significantly in that wild card game last year. But you and I... We both saw that the Eagles were trending in the right direction, especially how they played uh, that second half of not this past season, but last season. And, you know, we definitely saw that obviously Jalen Hurts was getting comfortable being the starting quarterback. And as far as I see it, Kev, the elevation of his game this year to the point where he was in consideration for MVP honors. I think you could tie that back to what Nick Sirianni was able to establish, not only with the offense, because you know it's one thing to run the offense as effectively as they have, and he's been really a great play caller for them this year. But when you instill that type of confidence and competence on the offensive side of the ball, that makes the defensive side of the ball their job a lot easier. And you could tell... Now that the offense is running and gun- is running and gunning, you could tell just the confidence level of the defense has been risen to a point where, Kev, the defense had what seventy total sacks this year. They were only a couple sacks two, away from the all- two away from tying the all time sack record. You could just tell that the Eagles are trending in a right direction, not only this year, but as far as I see it, I I think that the Eagles right now are set up for long term success for probably the next three to five years. I'm not going to project out five to ten years. That's way too far. But they're in a good position right now. And I do think that Nick Sirianni deserves a lot of credit for that. Because, you know, when we look at what the Eagles have been able to display this year, they were consistently one of the best teams, if not the best team, for an extensive part of the year. And and mind you, you know, when you look over the last couple of years that have when you look at the top teams in the NFL, it's mostly been teams like the Rams, the Buccaneers with Tom Brady. You look towards the AFC, you can look towards the Chiefs and the Bengals. The Eagles weren't really even in that conversation last year. Granted, like I said, they were trending in the right direction, but nobody was saying that the Eagles would go from 9-8 and eight last year, get spanked by the Bucs in the first round of the playoffs last year, to oh, this is a number one seed, and this is a team that could potentially win a Super Bowl. For me, I didn't see this type of leap from the Eagles happening this year. I maybe thought, okay, maybe they can make a divisional round. Maybe they could even make a championship game in the NFC. 
But to go all the way to the Super Bowl in, in the manner that they've done it, I have to say, Nick Sirianni has done a fantastic job in just leading this group of men to the success that they've had this year and to get the crowning achievement of winning a Super Bowl potentially, you know, would really be the icing on the cake for them as a whole. You know, Nick Sirianni, you know, when it comes to him specifically, he's going to be probably the coach of the year, or he should at least be one of the top guys in consideration for it. And, you know, we'll see what happens with the Eagles moving forward. And I'm of the mindset that they're set up for some pretty good success here, not just for this year totality. But I think as long as the roster stays relatively healthy, if they're able to retain some core pieces moving forward for the next couple of years, I think the Eagles are going to be in a good place moving forward from here. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Eagles find themselves in a situation where they could play for another Super Bowl or be in contention for a Super Bowl past this season. And I think it, as long as Nick Sirianni is able to just establish that, I guess, aura of consistency in winning games week in and week out, I think the Eagles are going to be in a good position moving forward. That's just how I see it. Hey, don't forget, I predicted the Eagles to go to the NFC Championship at the beginning of the year, and you scoffed at me. You looked at me weird. I did. I did. I wasn't expecting it. Listen, I was thinking maybe divisional. Maybe divisional. I 100% had faith this defense would turn around the moment Bradbury signed. The mo- I, I said that was going to be the one. That piece. Yes, Hassan Reddick was pivotal in the pass rush, but when it comes to not one lockdown, two lockdown corners on an NFL franchise, that doesn't exist. It's not common. And when it does, one usually leaves to chase a bag. You have two vets. They're not rookies. One's not ancient and at the tail end of their career. Yes, Darius Slay's been in the league nine, ten years, but he's still at the top of his game. You can make the argument that he's still in the prime of his career, and we know that James Bradbury is still very much in the prime. I knew that that signing was going to be pivotal, and I had faith. Uh, I I had faith mm. this defense was going to find a way to turn it around from last year. And the excuse me, pardon me, the offense taking that leap that I didn't see. That I will be blunt about. I didn't see Jalen Hurts taking that ascension jump. Not He didn't take a leap. He took a massive ascension into a different category, especially if he caps the season off with a Super Bowl. Jalen Hurts automatically enters a different threshold this year. Well, well here's, the, here's the thing. I'm going to be a little petty here. That's fine. Where was this at? Divisional round. I agree. Listen, where, where I'm not was denying that. Where was it at? I'm not, I'm not denying that. Listen, I got lost in the moment and the hype behind the Giants doing what they did to Minnesota. I didn't have faith in the Eagles having two weeks off or a week off, whatever it was. I, I genuinely thought the Giants were going to come in and upset them. I thought history was repeating itself. I was wrong, and I can own that. But when it comes to predictions in terms of... I was wrong, too. Terms I was wrong too. The, <laughs> the, when, I can, when, when I'm talking early predictions of the season... This is something I saw as a 100% a possibility. I told Isabel's dad, and he was like, don't jinx us. And I was like, it's not about jinxing. You guys have the roster and the coach to do it. I was wrong about them getting this far. But I, I don't even... Did you, really, did you realistically think that this team could make a Super Bowl in the manner that they did? It depended on the, the matchup of who it depended on the matchup of who they had in the NFC Championship. I predicted, unfortunately, it was going to be Minnesota. But, I mean, realistically, unless Tampa had a Tom Brady-esque year, like the, the, of the two years, of, of the two years prior, that would have been somebody to rival them. 
I don't think Dallas could have beat them. I don't think that the, the, the Buccaneers could have beat them unless they were healthy. Like I said, like a Tom Brady year. I really don't think anybody in the NFC West would have beat them outside of the 49ers, but Brock got hurt. And even if Brock didn't get hurt, there was no guarantee that that pass rush wasn't going to hit home like it was throughout the game. Well, it, it, so here's the thing. Like, I, I remember when we did our preseason picks. I mean, we picked the Bills and the Rams to go to the Super Bowl. Yep. And neither of those <laughs> neither of those teams made it. So, you know, our Super Bowl picks, <laughs> I mean, you basically just scrap them and throw them in the trash as far as I see it. That's putting but, it nicely. But, no, I didn't see the Eagles getting to the point where they're at now. Now, granted, I would say... This is a you kind of, this is a caveat that is a little bit pessimistic in nature. They didn't really have that difficult of a path. I'm not denying that. And, again, it comes down to X. You still gotta win, bro. I know, I know. It's just for them, you know, they went up against, I would say, an overhyped Giants team. Even though that I thought they had a pretty stingy defense, they just didn't show it that day. They got smoked by the Eagles, and then that speaks to the offense. And then, you know, they went up against a battered 49ers team that honestly was legitimately They didn't come about, into that game injured. They I got under, injured during the game. So it's a whole different narrative. You can't control that. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, you know, I actually had faith that the 49ers would advance to the Super Bowl. But, you know, once Brock went out, that was it was over. Like, I knew it was over the, 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 the second that he got hurt, especially when he couldn't grip the ball on the sideline. But no, I mean, the Eagles are in a situation where, you know, this would be their, what, second Super Bowl in, in five, years. five years. So Two different coaches, two different quarterbacks. Two different, two different, completely different teams. Minus like Fletcher Cox and a couple other people. I mean, just stylistically, the team has changed dramatically. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at Nick Foles. Nick Foles was able to lead that team to a Super Bowl. I mean, what you got, you had guys like Alshon Jeffrey, you had Zach Ertz. Tory Smith, I mean, like the whole roster has been really kind of. I mean, offensively, it's been turned over. Malcolm Jenkins was the defensive captain on that team. Oof. I, I mean, Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham were there too. So yeah, I mean, like there, there was you, again, you, there are some vet pieces that are still there. But by and large, like a and large Jason Kelsey of, and Lane Johnson, like again, th- there's some core, on the offense. There are some core players still from that Super Bowl team, but the overwhelming majority of that roster has been turned over since that last Agreed. Super Bowl. Right. 100%. So, but and I will say, you know, going into the game, they are healthier than the Chiefs. Yeah, and that's saying th- something. And as far as I see it, they are the more well-rounded team going into the Super Bowl. It's going to come down to can Pat do enough against that defense? That yep. defense is nothing to slight. So, nope. Obviously, we'll cover the Super Bowl on our next episode going into Friday. Obviously, you know we'll we'll have our predictions. Uh, we'll have just kind of like a, just a big dive into the Super Bowl because we'll have a lot to talk about then. But outside of that, we do have some other topics to get to, and we are going to go back to some of the segments that we've been doing over the last couple of episodes where we dive into teams that have been eliminated from the playoffs and we'll go, we'll brand out more extensively for teams that didn't make the playoffs uh, as time goes on. Uh, but the next team that we're going to go over and some of the things that they need to do to improve this offseason is going to be the Baltimore Ravens. If you guys remember the Ravens got knocked out of the wild card round in a 
really competitive game against the Bengals, even though that Lamar Jackson did not play in that game for the Ravens. Uh, the Ravens had a valiant effort against the Bengals. Unfortunately for them, they found themselves on the L column, got eliminated from the playoffs, but it was not from a lack of trying. They really pushed the Bengals to, I would say, the brink. You know, the Ravens had a real good chance to win that game on the road when nobody was expecting them to do that. And going into this offseason, though, there are a lot of looming questions. We don't know if Lamar Jackson is going to sign an extension contract or sign a contract extension with the Ravens moving forward for the long-term future. And as far as I see it, that is the biggest looming question for the Ravens as a whole as we go into the offseason. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, what are some things that the Ravens need to address this offseason? This offseason. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Moving forward. Well, let's preview this with the Ravens have a pretty solid team put together on the defensive side of the ball, right? You lost Marcus Williams at the beginning of the year, earlier on in the year. You have Marcus Peters. You obviously have Marlon Humphrey. You have Patrick Queen. You've signed Roquan Smith. You had a decent pass rush this year. So, like, the defense is something I'm not really focused on. This is going to be, obviously, common sense for everybody in the football world. Your primary focus needs to be extending Lamar Jackson full-term, long-term, whatever analogy you want to use, whether that's tagging him and handling it next year. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to play on the tag, but you have to get him committed every single time. The Ravens start hot. This is also the negative to it. Lamar gets hurt and the Ravens plummet. But it goes to show the value of him excels that through the injury because it's like when he's not available, the Ravens just don't play well. Again, the defense played good, but without Lamar Jackson, the offense struggled. So I would say top priority, got to re-sign Lamar. Second priority, bolster up that offensive line just a little bit more. Make sure that he is protected in all aspects. And I know that it's very hard to protect a, uh, a mobile quarterback such as himself of, some, of that caliber. But I would say that, you know, boosting up that offensive line. And then it's got to be wide receivers. We've been saying this for years. Lamar Jackson has not had a definitive target in his career outside of Hollywood Brown and Mark Andrews. He's got nobody. Devin Duvernay and a list of other receivers that I'm not going to waste my time naming. Get Lamar some help. He cannot continue to do this all by himself. He cannot continue to extend plays and escape pressure for 30 yards a clip in terms of how many yards he runs per play trying to avoid pressure and make plays with his feet and extend plays with his feet. You have to get Lamar Jackson some helps, some helps, some help with some weapons. I'm not talking about a vertical deep threat. I'm not talking about a dual threat running back that can catch out of the backfield and also run downhill. I'm talking about a definitive number one receiver, whether that's in the draft or in this upcoming free agency class. But the bottom line is every aspect of that offense needs to be upgraded. Again, you got to upgrade by just signing Lamar long term. You got to get a receiver, if not two, 
And then, of course, you, you, you got to make sure that Lamar stays healthy, solidify the offensive line. You can make a fourth point and argue that, you know, they need some running back depth, too, because J.K. was hurt. He had to go in and bring Kenyon Drake. They haven't really had the best luck with healthy running backs over the last couple of years, as everybody knows. But I would say focalize on the first three that I said. Lamar, line, wide receiver. You may even make the argument that wide receiver probably has to be a little bit more important since the Ravens' offensive line isn't horrible. But, again, for the sake of what we're talking about, you got to talk about you. You got to extend Lamar long term. Got to get some receivers and and load up that offensive line. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. Pretty much everything you just laid out is pretty much what I was going to go over. Uh, I want to focus on the wide receiving core here because Kev, this is abysmal. I mean, granted, there are some guys that can produce. I'm not going to disrespect them that way, but to say that the Guys that I'm going to list off here are number one targets that Lamar Jackson is throwing to. Bro, this is ridiculous. Let me dive into this list here real quick. I know that you mentioned DuVernay. Let's dive into this a little bit more, just so everybody understands. I'm looking at their depth chart right now. Their number one option at the wide receiving court is Demarcus Robinson. Demarcus Robinson, if you go back to his KC days, which was just literally a year ago, Kev, he was like the fourth option on the team in their wide receiving core. I mean, obviously, back then, you had guys like Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill. I think even McCole Hardman was ahead of him. Hell, even Byron Pringle may have been ahead of Demarcus Robinson. So the fact that he's the number one option that the Ravens had at their disposal this year, that's not a good sign. But let's keep going. Number two, Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins had a little bit of a resurgence back when he was with KC. Not going to lie about that. But it's been a couple years since that. And Sammy just hasn't been able to produce at a good enough clip to be a valuable number one or even a number two wide receiver compared to some other wide receiving cores in the NFL. I'll go to the third guy that they have on the top of the depth chart here. James Prochet II. To be quite honest with you, I don't really know much about James Prochet. After that, you got Rashad Bateman, Devin Duberday, and Andy Isabella. This is the cast of guys that Lamar had at his disposal this year before he got hurt. And I could tell it's not going to be enough. Now, granted, you have Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews, solid tight end. But I think even this year, he did not produce at the clip that we've seen him produce the last couple of years. And it's pretty simple. I think opposing defenses just know, okay, we'll basically put Mark Andrews in a bind. You know, if we get him in a situation where we double team him, you know, Lamar's going to have to either run out of the pocket, make some plays on his feet, or he's going to have to throw to guys like Demarcus Robinson, Sammy Watkins, and Jace Prochet the second. That to me is not a winning formula. So obviously the biggest thing to me is they have to upgrade the wide receiving core and they have to get a legitimate number one receiver. And I mean, a legitimate number one. And they're going to have to find it either in free agency or they're going to have to trade for somebody because you're not going to find it in the, in the draft. Outside of that, the other big thing with them is the status of Lamar Jackson. Is Lamar Jackson going to be the future quarterback of the Ravens right now? And honestly, I can't say that. Kevin and I were looking at reports before we started recording. Apparently, the gap in the contract negotiations with the dollar amount is as wide as of $100 million between what Lamar Jackson camp 
what Lamar Jackson's camp wants and what the Ravens are potentially putting on the table. If that is the case, because that number is quite large, if it was like 20 million, maybe that's something that they can iron out. But if it's 100 million, I don't see how this can be rectified moving forward. More than likely, the Ravens are going to have to settle with franchise tagging him. And I know Lamar doesn't want that. I know Lamar wants a contract very similar to what Deshaun Watson just got with Cleveland, where he got his contract fully guaranteed. I can tell you right now, that is not happening. Lamar Jackson has not been playing up to that same level that he displayed in his MVP campaign just a couple years ago. And the other thing is, Lamar's been hurt. The injury history here is something that, unfortunately, Lamar faced. And unfortunately, the Ravens are probably going to use that against him in contract negotiations. That's the business side of things. So to me, most of the issues that I see with the Ravens going into this offseason are on the offensive side of the ball. Defensively, I think they're more stable there as a unit, but the offense, it needs to be completely retooled. And unless the Ravens go out there and make some big moves this offseason to bring in a better cast of targets to throw to for Lamar Jackson, I think the Ravens are going to be a competitive team, but I don't think they're going to really threaten for an AFC championship or a Super Bowl next year. You know, to me, Lamar Jackson is a huge piece moving forward, but if they do not bolster up this wide receiving core, this team will go nowhere and they will finish very similar to what they had this past season. They will probably make a wild card. If they're lucky, they may advance, but they'll more than likely get knocked out in the divisional round. And to me, it really comes out to Lamar Jackson. If they don't sign Lamar Jackson and he ends up going somewhere else, or if they just franchise tag him, you're not really solving the issue. You're just kicking the can down the road. And if they completely move on from Lamar Jackson, it's pretty much a rebuild as far as I see it. So the Ravens got a lot to work on this offseason, and it's going to be a bumpy road as far as I see it. Let's One more thing before we move on to our next team. The thing about the Ravens, as of this article that I'm reading from Pro Football, the Ravens, as of the 15th of January, had $48.8 million in available cap space, which at the time was fifth most in the league. Now, that is, of course, subject to subject to change when the full details of Roquan Smith's contract were to come out. Again, this is from two, three weeks ago. When you have to talk about a fully guaranteed contract, when you have to talk about Lamar Jackson getting extended, that's anywhere from 35 to $40 million per year in and, just Lamar Jackson. And more than likely, he might want more than that. Exactly. That's just spitballing a, a, a simpler range. How are you going to attract free agents to play with no money? How are you going to bring in number one wide receivers in terms of attention when they don't have any capital? This is the issue with the upgrade of the quarterback market right of the of the evolution of the quarterback market one player is going to take up a quarter of your team's total salary the salary cap range has been increased to 225 million if lamar jackson is making 40 plus million dollars a season and again that's generous that's just being generous because we all know pat's making upwards of 45 to 50 we know that aaron Rodgers is making 50 this is what we call holding teams hostage you're handcuffed to this quarterback for how, however many years it is. However you got to do it, if, if you do got to do it the Dallas way 
where you give him the most money up front in the first year or two where it's like $70 million and then you divvy it out in the back end? I don't know. The point is, if Baltimore is going to give the bulk load of their available cap right now to Lamar Jackson, you can kiss getting a number one receiver goodbye. You can kiss upgrading the offense goodbye. And then when Mark Andrews is up for another extension, who's the only consistent offensive piece on this team, and some of those defenders are going to be up and eligible for contract extensions, what do you do? This is my problem with the quarterback market the way that it currently stands. You got to break the bank for one person, and the team suffers, and then that one quarterback is like, yo, where's my help? That's my, that's my final point. People have to be mindful of what the hell they're asking for. You want to extend Lamar? You got to do it within a reasonable market. And he's well, got to understand that too. You know, and this is kind of an interesting caveat or, or I guess like a detail here. You know, I understand you know, Lamar wants to get, he wants to get something consistent for the long term. And he definitely deserves a pretty sizable contract extension. But Kev, one would beg the question. Does Lamar want a contract extension or does he want to compete for a Super Bowl? And as far as I see it, he's just pretty much predicated on, on getting the contract. And I don't really see how the Ravens could be a viable team moving forward if this if Lamar Jackson is going to ask for a 40 to 45 million dollar, maybe even a 50 million per year contract for the next five to six years. I don't know how the Ravens would be able to swing cap room for that. You know, you're talking about, I mean, look at the wide receiving core for God's sake. I mean, we, we basically just trashed the wide receiving core. I mean, I'm, I'm not really happy about Trash. the situation. I'm not happy about the situation that Baltimore has placed upon Lamar with the wide receiving core. Now you had a 50 million a year contract with Lamar. You think that wide receiving core is going to get any better? I don't see that happening. And more than likely, there are going to be some cap casualties because of that. And more than likely, I, the Ravens might be a 500 team. It's just... Maybe. You, you know, it just kind of comes with the territory. If your quarterback is taking a major chunk of the cap space available for the team, you're going to struggle. Me. Aaron Rodgers went through that situation with Green Bay. And now he's in a situation where apparently the team is thinking about trading him. I don't know what's going to happen with Lamar. More than likely, I think what's going to happen is they're going to settle for a franchise tag. And Whether or not he plays on the tag is a whole other conversation. And honestly, with the way that things transpired over the last couple weeks of the season, maybe Lamar could have been able to go in that playoff game but maybe he was playing it safe. Maybe he didn't want to risk another injury on top of that that could affect his value in a contract negotiation. I don't know. But it doesn't seem like, you know, the Ravens are a real good position with Lamar right now. And as far as I see it, I think things have a tendency. I think things may lean towards the side of getting worse. And, and and there's no guarantee that Lamar is going to be their guy at the quarterback position a couple years down the road. There's no guarantee. I can't say that right now. No. I mean, even though John Harbaugh said at a press conference, I think a week or two ago, that, you know, he's our guy. He's the one we're going to get it done with. Like, we don't have another option. But that's neither here nor there. We do have another team to 
talk about today and what they are going to need to do for their offseason, and that's going to be the Seattle Seahawks. So just to recap, the Seattle Seahawks end up winning, uh, excuse me, they end up making a wild card. They end up, I guess, playing better than the entire world saw them to play in terms of how they were able to turn it around with the departure of Russell Wilson and the emergence of Geno Smith, who potentially is going to win comeback player of the year and all these different narratives, right? The pot, the bottom line is Seattle overachieved. They found a way to either get a bridge quarterback of the future in terms of what Geno Smith can pre- present. They have a solid offense, but their issue is on the other side of the ball. So Kyle, with the success of the Seahawks season, which I, I know that the two of us both deem it a success as opposed to what it could have been, what do the Seahawks need to do to improve for 2023? There are a few things. I think relatively speaking, though, I think, Seattle's in a stable place. Uh, that was not the case uh, when Russell Wilson got traded from Seattle to Denver because everybody was on the mindset that Seattle was just going to go on a full reboot and just try to build this thing from scratch. And yet they found a pretty reliable option in Geno Smith. And like you said, Kevin, I mean, I think he set himself up for comeback player of the year with the way that he played. And even though that Seattle made the playoffs this year, they got smacked pretty good in that 49ers game in the wild card round. And that was despite the fact that they were actually playing relatively well in the first half of that game. So a few things that I would focus on if I were Seattle moving forward. Number one would be extend Geno Smith. I think the way that he played this past season, I think he earned a contract extension for at least the near-term future, the short-term future with Seattle moving forward. I wouldn't be mad if Seattle offered him somewhere around a two to three year deal, probably around 55 to maybe 65, $70 million uh, for the length of the contract. And I think moving forward, if he's able to play up to that standard, I think offensively, Seattle's going to be in a good place. They have a good run game with uh, Kenneth Walker. And the fact that he was pretty effective in his rookie season and that Geno Smith was able to establish good consistency with him in the backfield. And, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett in the wide receiving core. I think that Seattle's office is trending in the right direction. So I think that's point number one. Number two would be to improve their rush defense and, you know, to focus on that 49ers wildcard game. Kev, that was a game in particular where Christian McCaffrey was extremely effective and Seattle's front four front seven, if you want to consider it with the linebackers couldn't contain their run game. And there were multiple instances where Seattle's rush defense was subpar, where they fell short. And that's really been one of the Achilles heels of Seattle of late. Ever since the Legion of Boone, they really haven't been able to establish a consistent defense. And there there have been points throughout the last couple of years where Seattle's had one of the worst defenses, not only in just relative in recent history. But in NFL history, they were giving up huge point totals a couple of years ago and giving up God knows how many yards, at least 350, sometimes 375 yards a game to opposing offenses. So one area that I would like to see them bolster, whether it's in free agency or in the draft this upcoming year, is to try to improve that front four. If they could be able to just focus on that interior D-line and bolster that part of the defense up, I think that things could be trending in a better direction for that defense. And then if I had to focus on one more point, this kind of sounds counterintuitive to the Geno Smith point that I mentioned, is to honestly draft a quarterback. Because as far as I see it, 
if Geno Smith goes down and they have to rely on Drew Locke, I don't believe he's the guy to lead that team to, to success. So maybe they should look towards the draft. If a quarterback kind of falls in their lap at the right position in the right round, maybe Seattle should pull the trigger. And the reason why is I don't see Geno Smith as a quarterback that's going to lead Seattle to success for the next five to 10 years. I don't see that happening. Geno Smith had a very good year this year, but if you're going to sit here and tell me that he's going to be their guy for the next 10 years, I think you're out of your mind. So more than likely, I think they may test the waters of looking towards the draft to possibly draft a quarterback of the future and maybe use Geno Smith as somebody that could essentially teach him the ropes in the NFL as somebody that they could potentially draft and try to groom as time goes on uh, in that young quarterback's potential future. So as far as I see it, I'll just limit it to the three points that I made. Resign or extend uh, Geno Smith for the foreseeable future. Try to improve that interior defensive line to just improve the overall run defense. And then see if you could draft a quarterback for the future. I think if they do those three things, I think that will be in a good position moving forward. So I'll just leave it at that. So I am going to follow this up with agreeing in some instances, but kind of pivoting into another couple areas. So outside of just the rush defense, I think Seattle needs to improve in a multitude of different aspects on that defensive side of the ball. You went and you got Jamal Adams for a pretty hefty price a few years ago. That hasn't paid out with him being injured pretty much every single season. So I would say you need to go out there and get a safety. You have Tyreek Woolen at the corner, a young emerging rookie that played exceptionally well. You need to build off of that. Get him a running mate in, at corner. Get another safety out there. Build up that secondary to kind of bolster the pass defense that they already have, which is, again, nothing to really brag about, but it's a cornerstone piece that you can build upon. Shut down corners, if not reasonably above average corners, are hard to come by, especially at that age where they got him in the draft. He emerged to be a very, very, very good pick for them. Then I would say, got to get that pass rush going. In order to create turnovers, quarterbacks have to be under duress. The Seattle Seahawks need to find a way to pressure the quarterback like they did back when they were competing in Super Bowls, whether that is going to be with Michael, whether that was with Bruce Irvin, Michael Bennett, and a couple of other different aspects that were just pivotal pieces as to why the Seahawks were competitive on the def- defensive end. It wasn't just the Legion of Boom. That pass rush was very good, too, at helping them force turnovers. And then I would say you got to build up the offensive line. This is another reason why Seattle and Denver were comparable in terms of offensive line efficiency. They need to build up the interior, build up specifically at the guard spots. That way, you don't have to worry about that internal pressure, which can also lead to getting expanded run lanes for Kenneth Walker. So if you're going to build up on something on the offensive side, you got good receivers, you have a good running back, you have Geno Smith. Obviously, at the end of the day, with you having the fifth overall pick, if you and Geno can't agree to a, a contract, tag him, draft a quarterback of the future. Just in case negotiations fall fall south or fall, fall short, like Kyle said, that's going to be my fourth thing is, is, is lock down the quarterback position, whether that is a tag for Geno and drafting a quarterback, extending Geno, drafting a high prospect edge rusher for Seattle. I wouldn't go. I, if you commit to Geno for three to four years, I would say at that point, do not waste the fifth overall pick. You are still in playoff contention. Go for something that you need, whether that's an offensive lineman or an edge rusher. But again, that's neither here nor there. For me specifically, you got to go out there and get a safety that's going to either complement or replace Jamal Adams. You got to go out there and you got to get an edge rush. 
and then you definitely got to go get an interior protection to make sure that the investment that you make, whether that's with a draft pick or Geno Smith, they're going to be protected. Yeah, and honestly, you know, with Seattle before this season, Kev, things were not things were not rosy. Not at all. You know, there was not a rosy picture for Seattle after the whole Russell Wilson trade took place. I mean, I think we discussed it saying Seattle was going to be the worst team in the division. And by a mile. And, and lo and behold, they made the playoffs. So the fact that they were able to outplay the Rams, who just completely fell apart this year, finished five and twelve. And then they I mean, they outperformed the Cardinals, which I mean wasn't very hard to do. Yeah, that kind of walk in the park when you know when you think about it with them, whenever you play against them. But no, I think I think we underestimated the value of Pete Carroll in this instance because I, I think everybody be honest with you, I, I think there's going to be a looming question. I think you even brought this up last week about like if Russell Wilson doesn't play well under Sean Payton, was that all Pete Carroll when Russell was there? Obviously, we'll see if time time will tell in that regard. But Agreed. the fact that that offense was pretty stable, granted they weren't putting up you know 30, 40 points a game. Like they they weren't like no. a Chiefs team. They weren't like the Bills. Like you know we're not they were talking above average though. They were like they got uh, good contributions from Kenneth Gainwell in his rookie year, and I think Geno Smith stunned everybody. And I think moving forward, I think he'll be in a position where I think he'll be able to prove that value again going into next year. Because I think there is a mutual interest between Gino and the Seahawks to keep this thing going until they do find that quarterback of the future, which they are going to have to get around to. Eventually, you know, I, right. I, but I, right now, with what the situation that they're in, they're not going to win a Super Bowl. I mean, I, I can't say that because obviously the Eagles were in the same position where they had good pieces in specific places. They just needed to tweak a lot of things. If you have the right GM in work. place. Defense is a work, though. Like I said, you, you get the right pieces. You figure out the quarterback situation. They are in contention again for another playoff spot. And it Definitely. only takes a, it only takes a couple of games toward the end of the season, maybe a playoff upset, a playoff victory that leads you down a run. We have seen wildcard teams make a Super Bowl run a multitude of times. It's possible. You have the pedigree with the coach. You obviously have the quarterback that can do it and doesn't turn the ball over a lot. That's efficient at completing passes, led the league in completion percentage. I will say that again because that is very difficult. For somebody who's been a backup the last five or six years, he didn't make a lot of those mistakes. He got two good receivers in in in, in uh, Lockett and DK Metcalf. You have the potential. Just build around the little weaknesses that you have, which are very big weaknesses. I shouldn't say little, but I think Seattle's in a prime position right now to compete at least over the next three or four years until they find that quarterback. Don't panic right now unless those contract negotiations fall through and then you're sitting there stuck with nobody at that point, then you got to draft a quarterback at five and say, listen, we have faith in you, but we, we can't sit here year after year and pass up on prospects. Honestly, I couldn't have said it any better. So, Kev, that pretty much wraps it up. We've covered all the topics that we had on the list or on the agenda. Is there, um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up? 
No, nah, man. Uh, I mean, upcoming timeline, obviously, you guys know we got an episode coming out tomorrow, which is this one. We got the episode coming out on Friday, which is going to be our, our, our Super Bowl predictions, and we're going to really deep dive into the matchups of Kansas City versus the Eagles. After that, you got the All-Star game that's coming up that next weekend uh, in the NBA. The trade deadline is on Thursday, so we will be recording the night of the trade deadline to report everything for Friday morning. Obviously, you guys will have already seen it, but in terms of content-wise, that's going to be what we're focalizing after the Super Bowl content. So we got a lot of stuff coming up in the next seven days specifically, and if you want to include the All-Star weekend, I mean, we we got stuff coming over the next two weeks. So uh, again, we appreciate the support. Having a great time. Podcast is doing great. Kyle and I are having fun. And uh, that's all that really matters, man. So, again, thank you guys for everything. And uh, we will see you guys again soon. Yep. Take it easy, you guys. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.